0: Father, we thank you so much for the work that you've accomplished for us being our great and faithful high priest. We know that you have currently hold that office for us and what great benefits there are to the believer because of your priesthood. You continue to intercede for us, you mediate for us, you purified us, you continue to purify us. Lord, we thank you so much for accomplishing this work. There is truly nobody like you, like we've sung, as we've continued to learn about you and look at your life through the Gospel of Luke. Our eyes have been drawn directly to the person and the work of Christ, and we've been watching and looking and paying attention, we can truly say that there is nobody like you. And the fact that you being who you are and your your goodness and your holiness, your righteousness have come to us, we just get done celebrating Christmas and being reminded again so clearly of the, the incarnation, God with us, dwelling with mankind, that he might live among us and fulfill the work and the offices that uh, were laid out before him so that we might receive the righteousness of Christ. And, be united with you and have fellowship and enjoy this life that you've given to us in Christ and all the wonderful promises that come along with being united um, in Christ and and Lord just what a wonderful gift and blessing it is that you've given to us I pray that um, this year would be a year where we are drawn into deeper and closer fellowship with you we are conformed into the image of Christ and this church would help proclaim the goodness the excellencies of Christ Lord And that you might be honored and glorified and pleased, and we might be faithful to do that which you call us to do, Lord. So, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for this time together. We love you. We thank you for your love for us, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I hope everybody is enjoying their new year so far. Um. We're going to be in Luke chapter 19 verses 45 through 48 today. And so you can feel free to turn there. I want to talk a little bit today about what our text shows us in the office of Christ in the way of him being our faithful high priest. And we've seen already if you go back and you look, and just for contextually to kind of get the idea the flow of this, um, it really begins in chapter 19 verse 28 with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem and he he sets himself apart as being king um, over all things. And he's rightly proclaimed that way. Um, then there's a seamless transition into verses 41 through 44, where we saw last week he um, is acknowledged and sets himself up as being this, the final prophet. And then what we're going to see today is his office as the priest and again we see the seamless transition there's really not a break until the, um, chapter 20 verse 1 where it breaks and it says then one day so in the in the mind of luke he's seamlessly transitioning and putting together these three offices the king the prophet and the priest and they all center on the person of jesus christ he is he, i mean throughout the whole book of luke he's been the primary uh, person all the attention has been on him but Luke does it in a unique way, at least in this text, as Jesus begins his ministry into Jerusalem. You remember, um, I told you guys that there's really three broad sections to the book of Luke, and his entry into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry in chapter 19, verse 28, marks the beginning of the third section, the last section of the book of Luke, and so everything that takes place from here going forward takes place within the, within Jerusalem. It's, his, it's the Jerusalem aspect of his ministry, and so it's It's fitting, it's really fitting if you think about it, that upon going into Jerusalem, he establishes himself as the king, the prophet, and the priest. And there's these three offices in the Old Testament that were specifically designed by God for, him, for God to represent Himself to His people. And men had filled one or, or two of these offices at previous times throughout the Old Testament, but no one had ever filled all three. And that's really what sets Jesus Christ apart, is the fact that He comes as the triumphant King. He comes into Jerusalem as the final prophet. And what it is that we see today is He comes as the faithful high priest. And I have to tell you that it's his office of high priest, which is the one I think that um, really speaks about his tenderness and his care and his personal work and love toward the believer in a very unique way that, the, that his office as king and prophet may not. I mean, all three of them are unique and distinct, and we need all three of them, but there's something about his priesthood that's very personal for us. There are so many wonderful promises and we won't have time to get into all of those today, but if you think about his ministry as priest on behalf of the bride of Christ, the church, and his his ministry as priest on your behalf as well, there's an incredible amount of comfort and care and, and you really see the tenderness and the work of Christ and his heart for his people in this office in particular. And so that's one of my prayers that um, we see today as we as we look at the text. Um, just kind of a brief overview. And I kind of thought about these, these three offices as King Prophet and Priest. And you think about the think about the complete picture that's offered to us in these three offices as King He looks after his people, he provides for their needs, he protects them, and yet he calls for a right living. People are to live in a particular way under his kingdom, right? So you think about a king over a kingdom, and what does a king do for his people? He he provides for them, he protects them, he lays down the rules and the laws of the land of which people live according to them, things will generally go well for them. And so he established himself as the king, and he provides and he protects for all of their needs. Um, he establishes himself as the final prophet. And in doing so, he speaks truthfully. He speaks, he speaks authoritatively. He warns, but he also blesses. And he tells us what is to come. And he gives promises and assurances as the prophet. And so not only is the king, does he provide and protect us, but he also speaks truthfully to us and authoritatively to us and he blesses us and he warns us and um as and he speaks and he does all of that christ does all of that through his word to us he speaks authoritatively and prophetically to his people warning us and telling us of what is to come and then as the role of the high priest you think about what he does he purifies he mediates he intercedes he prays for. This is one of the things, guys, that we've been learning about in particular in the men's breakfast in John 17, right? His high priestly prayer on behalf of his church. Those who are gathered with him um, at that moment, and then those who are to come, who are us. He prays for us. He offers, and, and he offers as priest also, he at right sacrifices for his people. And so he purifies. He mediates. He intercedes. And he offers the right sacrifices. And as we're going to see, which many of us are aware of already, though, is there's a uniqueness to his office as priest. Because not only is he the priest offering the sacrifice, but he's the sacrifice as well. And this had been, you know, this is unheard of. No priest would offer themselves as atonement for people. And yet this is what Christ does. And so there's an incredible amount of of blessing and encouragement to be taken today from looking at him as our faithful high priest. So let's read, I want to read Luke chapter 19, verses 45 through 48 today. The text doesn't call him a priest specific, you know, explicitly. But it's implied as you read through, and as Wayne read our passages in Hebrews earlier, which we'll look at again, um, there, Hebrews does explicitly call him the high priest. But we see him taking up that role today in, in our Gospel of Luke. So Luke chapter 19, verses 45 through 48. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. You think about how what Jesus does in this text, and in what he does, establishes himself as an authoritative figure within the temple. And the first thing that he does, we see in verse 45, is he enters the temple. So, so, right, he's coming down off of the Mount of Olives. The people are proclaiming how one, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they proclaiming him as king, and he comes into Jerusalem, and as he looks at Jerusalem, he's lamenting the spiritual decay of the city, and he has this prophetic announcement that there's going to come a day in which it is just is decimated, it's laid to rubble. And We know that that day comes later on in 70 A.D. And so he laments the condition of the city of Jerusalem, of his people, and so what does he do? Where does he go? He goes straight to the heart of religious Jewish life. Upon entering in Jerusalem, he makes his way into the temple. This is the center of life for the Jew. This is the center of social life. This is the center of religious and spiritual life. This is the place where you came if you wanted to have fellowship with God. This is how he had established that he was going to meet with his people. And, and the version of the temple that they have here is different than the one that they had under Solomon's time, but still, in their minds, this is the place where they come to offer sacrifice. This is the place where they come to have fellowship with God, to do life with God, and to do life and have fellowship with one another as well. And But we see <clears throat> what it's become, and Jesus coming in Jerusalem makes his way Immediately into the temple and begins to drive out those who sold. And the place has become, the temple has become instead of a place for worship, has just become a common place for business. Not only that, but for really, for it's it now you would walk into the temple and see this situation. It's an opportunity for for exploitation. It's an opportunity. You see greed just uh, rampant going on here. Instead of it being a place where people are to come in and to be able to to worship the Lord and to find fellowship with him and to find a priest that we're going to offer right sacrifices for them that could restore broken fellowship with God. All it is that they see is money, is people selling to be able to make sacrifices in the money changers, and, and Jesus goes into the temple and he begins to drive them out. The word is that is used here is this word um, that is most commonly used for casting out. It says it is as if he is casting out these people from the temple in the same way that he would cast out a de, out of the de, the demons out of people who had been possessed by demons as well. He is in effect purifying the temple. If you were to look at Mark's gospel, his is the one that tells us that in doing so, Jesus is overturning the tables. He's overturning the tables. He's casting them out. He's driving them out of the temple. And John's gospel tells us that he makes a whip of cords, and he's pouring their coins out onto the floor. So this is not like Jesus, you know, the meek and mild Jesus just going in, hey, you know, could you please get your, this isn't, guys, this isn't right. You please gather your stuff up and just, you know, go on outside. Take your business elsewhere. It says not Jesus' um, I guess his attitude at the moment. He walks into the temple, right? And we think about who Jesus is, right? God in the flesh. This is his temple. What did he say when, he was, when his parents were looking for him as a young boy, when they couldn't find him? They found him in the temple. Didn't you know that I'd be in my father's house? There's this intimate connection between him and the Father, him being deity, and the temple holds a special place where he is to be rightly acknowledged and worshipped. And it's turned into a common place of business, greed, exploitation. And he goes in there and he is purifying it. He's setting it right, and in doing so, he overturns the tables. He makes a cord, a whip out of cords, and he's pouring the money out. And he's absolutely driving everybody out of the temple. And in doing so. He's purifying it. All that which is impure, unholy, all that which is sinful, that is permeated and taken up residence within the very dwelling place of God, Jesus Christ himself is going in and he is casting it out. He wants nothing to do with any of it. Is that, um, what it is that's going on in there right now. And he's taking all that which is unholy and impure, casting it out, and in doing so then begins to set back in order the way that things should be. And you see that in verse 46. He entered the temple, began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall become a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. This house is supposed to exist for a particular purpose, and it's it's not what you guys are doing. And so in in casting it out and purifying it, then he goes and seeks to restore it to what it is that it should be. It should be a house of prayer. It should be a place where people come to fellowship with God. What is prayer other than intimate fellowship and conversation with God? You think about what it is, that the blessing that the believer has by way of prayer. Where you can come to the one who speaks creation into existence. And you can find comfort. You can find words of hope. You can find one who cares and who sees and who knows and is working and uh, and reminder that we can trust in him. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him. Don't trust in yourself. Trust in the One who is supreme over all things. You think of the, the situations in life that come about that drive us to prayer. When we, come, we finally come to realization that we are actually not in control of all that it is that goes on in our lives, right? God has this, this, this way of working in our lives that reminds us that it is he that is in control that is he is working all things in the conformity of his will and then oftentimes there are things that happen in our lives that remind us of that very fact because all we have to do the only thing that we can do at those moments is pray you can, there's not enough money in the world that can fix whatever your problem is there is not enough medicine in the world that can fix whatever your problem is we're, we're frail people. And God brings us to oftentimes back to situations in life where we're reminded that we are in desperate need of him. We depend upon him for everything. Those are the times where we throw ourselves into prayer. That's what God's house was supposed to be, a place of fellowship, a place of prayer. He's quoting here Isaiah chapter And if you want to turn there, it's interesting. If you have these little titles over over the chapters in your Bible, Isaiah 56 has this title of Salvation for the Foreigner. And he quotes Isaiah 56, verse 7. And just for context... You read Isaiah 56, verse 2. Blessed is the man, well, well, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing evil. a reference there to Christ. He's the only one that truly keeps the Sabbath. He's the only one that keeps his hand from doing evil. He is the Son of Man that is able to do this. And it's specifically applied in Isaiah 56, not to the Jew, but to the Gentile. Isaiah 56, verse 6. And the foreigners The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. This is a wonderful promise of looking forward to the inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God. And the temple of God is to be a place where anybody and everybody who calls on the name of the Lord might find him and might find fellowship with him and an opportunity opportunity to worship him. Mark's Gospel makes it very clear when he quotes this. In Mark's Gospel of Jesus driving people out of the temple, he quotes it and says, that my house shall be a prayer for all nations. This is, the temple is supposed to be a place where access to God is granted by any and all who come to Him by faith. Now We know that this is going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's part of the reason why the temple is is destroyed. But as it is it exists right now in Jesus' ministry, he is going into the temple, he's purifying it and he's setting it back in order so that those who want to come and have fellowship with God and worship God and come by faith might be able to do so from all nations. But it is no longer a place of prayer. It is turned into a den of robbers. And Jesus again here quotes a passage. He quotes Jeremiah chapter 7 verses 9 through 11. And he says, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. I, I think to myself when I read that, a den of, you've made it a den of robbers. And I think, I ask myself the question, well, what are they robbing? If he, if he looks at it, it's no longer a house of prayer. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. But these men here, these, these people that are conducting business, have it's no longer a house of prayer. It's, they've made it a den of robbers. And so I ask myself the question, well, well then what are they, what are they stealing? And that's really where the context of Jeremiah, chapter 7, verse 9 through 11, comes into play, where the indictment is, is that God's people are loving him with their lips, but are far removed from him in their hearts of worshiping him. And so what they're robbing God of is genuine worship, genuine praise. You have turned my house, and you have made it from a place that is supposed to be a place of prayer. A place where people can find fellowship with God, they can pray to God, they can praise Him and worship Him. You have made it a den of robbers because you are stealing the people's opportunity from them being able to come in and do so. They're supposed to be able to come in freely if they come by faith to God and to, and to praise and to worship Him but you are robbing them of that opportunity because you have created it into being something that God never designed for it to be. You have taken God's institution into your own hands and making it something that you want for it to be so that you can make money off of it. And in doing so, you are robbing people of the opportunity of worship to God. Now, how do you think God feels about that? There is nothing more precious to God than God. And what is central to God being God is that he receives the worship and the praise that he is due. He will not share his glory with another. He, in his tremendous mercy and kindness, Provided a physical place where he says, look, I cannot be, you you cannot build a building big enough to inhabit me, right? I I am bigger than the, the solar system, the entire universe. I do not dwell in buildings built by the hands of men. But in my great mercy and goodness and kindness to you, I'm going to give you this place of which then I will come. And guess what? When you come here, you may find me. When you come by faith. When you come by faith to find me here, you can offer worship to me. And and if, if you're a believer and you're born again in Christ and you have these moments, right, where you're coming and you have worship, with the Lord, these are, aren't they, are they not some of the greatest moments in your life? Where you're having fellowship with God. It's as if He is right there before you. And He's pleased by the worship that you're offering to Him. The temple was a place where people could go and, 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 and find fellowship and to find forgiveness, to find, have their guilt. Their consciences, their guilty consciences being able to be done away with because they find the priests there, men appointed by God for a temporary time to take the sacrifices and offer them on their behalf, to restore fellowship with God where it's been broken, to to provide a place where people can pray to Him and come to Him. And they're being robbed completely robbed of that opportunity to do so. And this is what makes Jesus so angry. His righteous anger. He comes in and rightly so then cleanses the temple and purifies it and begins to establish things the way that they should be and set things back in order. And so the temple was unclean. Instead of being a place of prayer and praise, it had become a place of financial gain, exploitation and greed, and thus robbing God of the worship due to His name. And so then Jesus rightly so, after cleansing the temple and casting them out, reestablishing it as to being what it should be in a house of prayer. Verse 47, what does He do? He firmly cements Himself in the position of teacher. And he was teaching daily in the temple. It's as if he had cleansed it, he had set it back in order, and then every day he goes back there assuring that the work that he had done remains. And he takes up position as teacher. In the temple. This is this is no small role. And that's part of the reason why we see in verse 47 the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. He's taking their position. He is replaced. The chief priests and the scribes, these are the people that should have never allowed the temple to get to this position in the first place. They should have been the ones guarding the The temple and making sure that it remained what it was supposed to be. And in Jesus going in and turning everything upside down, it's an indictment directly to them of saying, You guys are guilty as well. You have allowed this, you have allowed God to be robbed of his worship on your watch. And so he sets himself up and establishes himself as teacher. And I begin to think to myself, what is it do we think that he is teaching while he's there in the temple? I think back to uh, Luke chapter 4 and the first time Jesus goes into a temple, right? Well, then it's actually in Nazareth, so it's a synagogue. But what does he do when he goes there? in Luke chapter 4, because I imagine that that's very similar to what it is that he's doing now in the temple in Luke chapter 19. He goes in, if you're looking at Luke chapter 4, he came to Nazareth, this is verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he he had been brought up, and as was his uh, his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he goes on from there to talk about how a... The prophet is rejected in his, in his own hometown. But jumped up down to verse 28. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. I imagine that this is very similar to what's happening in the temple. Luke 19, verse 47, and he was teaching daily in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. All these components that are very similar to Luke 4, you have the people just... The word hanging, it literally means suspended. As if he's speaking, they're, just, they're suspended in midair on what it is that Jesus of Nazareth is going to say. What's he going to teach to us? Have you ever, I mean, we've all been um, and we've all heard those sermons before where like an hour and a half sermon just goes by like that because you're so captivated by what it is that is the truth that's being unfolded and that you're hearing. It's filling your heart with such wonder and amazement. You laughed, you cried, it was so wonderful. I mean, we've heard sermons like that, right? I imagine that that's what it's like to hear the Lord Jesus Himself teach. The God of Scripture, the author of Scripture, opening up His own book, unrolling His own scrolls, and teaching the people with tremendous power and conviction over what it is that he is reading because it all points forward to him. I imagine not only is he teaching with such authority and power that people are suspended upon his very word, I imagine that he's teaching them primarily of himself and proclaiming the gospel of the good news. He's taking up residence in the temple, right? Okay, see, so he's purified it. He's cast them all out. He's reestablished it as to what it should be. And every day he comes into the temple and he's teaching the people. And I have no doubt that in his teaching of the people and reading through the Hebrew scriptures, he's teaching them about him. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom the good news so that's what he tells his disciples at the end of chapter 4 i must go to other cities and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom for that is why i have come and this has been a marker of everywhere that he's gone constantly teaching people about the kingdom of god that the king has come and he's calling people Those who are blind and helpless and wretched and who see their sin and their need for a Savior, they hear these words that Jesus is teaching and the good news of the kingdom of God and they come to Him because they see that there's hope for people like them. There's hope for the needy. There's hope for the wretched. And there's hope for the unclean. If you would come to Him by faith. And He would cast out none who would come to Him by faith. What a wonderful message if you have lived in discouragement and destitution. If you've been told your whole life because of your disease, because of your illness, because of your ailment, you have no access to God. There's no hope for you. You are destined to spend an eternity in hell separated from God. And then comes one who unfolds the scripture with such great power and authority. He says, no, there is hope. And I have come for people. That are destitute. I've come for those who are discouraged. I've come for those who have no hope in themselves. And then he bids you to come. This now, now the temple is functioning as it should. It's proclaiming and preaching the good news, and he's calling people to himself and forgiveness is granted. Guilt washed away. Salvation. Deliverance. Sin is being taken care of and handled. It's being atoned for. I imagine that many of those people, as Jesus taught daily, probably return daily. I know I would. I mean, some of us turn into our favorite preachers every day, right? I can't, miss, I can't miss Sproul's sermon, or I can't miss so-and-so's sermon. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. I wouldn't want to miss one. He's calling people to himself, but those whom he has replaced, the chief priests, the scribes, and the principal men of the city, they can't stand it. They seek to destroy him just like in Luke chapter 4. They want to throw him off a cliff and destroy him. And they see that what it is that they were called to do that they failed to do, Christ is successful in doing. Where these men were unfaithful, Christ was faithful. Only Christ intends not only to purify that temple, but to purify a people for himself. And so he does this here in the temple, but it's all pointing forward towards a grander work of salvation and redemption that he's going to accomplish. You turn to Hebrews for a moment with me, and I want us to spend the last few moments that we have here looking at the way that the book of Hebrews so wonderfully makes this clear for us you think about how he's identified as a priest in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Hebrews 2, 17, in talking about the Lord Jesus, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful, don't neglect to read the word merciful, become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He would go on again to say in chapter four, verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Hebrews explicitly identifies him as our merciful and faithful high priest. But then, Think of what it is that he says again later on in chapter 7. This is part of what Wayne read for us this morning. I want us to read chapter 7, verses 23 through 25 in particular. Not only does he establish himself as the faithful high priest, but his permanent priesthood actually makes him able to save. Which is really where it gets good for us, right? Because if he's the faithful high priest, that's wonderful, But if by his priesthood he's actually able to save and secure his people, well, then that's good news for us. It it assures us and promises us the life that he says he gives. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently. Because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Amen. He is not only the faithful high priest, but he's able to, because of his permanent office, he's able to intercede and secure salvation. This is why the believer, when coming to death, doesn't have to worry of being separated from him. Because Christ has cemented himself in the position of priest forever and continues to intercede on our behalf. And then he would go on even more later, just a few verses down in chapter 8, verses 1 through 2. And I love this because this is a wonderful summary of what he's been saying. Now the point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Talking about the accuracy, the truthfulness of his priesthood. I, it's, I was reading through Louis Burkhoff this week on this, and he, the thing that he said, which just struck me and I found so wonderful, is that he says, It's not that Jesus Christ was a type of priest, Jesus Christ is the priest, and he still functions in that office today. It's not as if he left that office behind when he ascended. He continues to minister as priest today. All the previous priests, those were types. They were all pointing forward to him, the true priest who came and consequently is able to save to the uttermost those who trust in him. And you think about that for you as a believer today. That Christ, at this moment, at this very moment, Intercedes on your behalf. An intercession that cannot be broken. A mediation. There's one mediator between God and man, right? The man, Jesus Christ. And it speaks about the permanency of his office and his ability to completely save those who come to him by faith. And what that does for the believer is that it sets us free to live the way that God calls us to live because we know that our t- eternity is assured and secured in him. He has it all covered. It's all taken care of. It's been purchased. And you know, that, lead, that enables us to be free to live the way that God calls us to live. To offer forgiveness to those who have wronged us many times and continue to come to us and ask for forgiveness. To show mercy upon those whom we would prefer to not show mercy. To love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. To pray for those who are in office that we might lead a quiet and godly life. Right? The believer's free to do these things because Christ Jesus himself lives to intercede for us and if that weren't enough not only is he our high priest but what has was unforeseen and what was so miraculous about the work of Christ is that not only is he the priest that would conduct the sacrifice he also places himself as the sacrifice He makes atonement for our sin by offering up himself for us. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. And every priest stands daily at his service offering offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And that sacrifice was Himself. He goes on in in chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It's incredible the way that the Scripture describes the work of Christ. Not only is he the priest that faithfully offers the sacrifice, but he offers the sacrifice of himself and he makes atonement. For our sin by offering up Himself on our behalf. Christ is the High Priest that mediates and He is the sacrifice that atones. And the wonder of it all is that He continues in office this way still to this day. We get ready to move towards the communion table today. I want us to, before partaking of communion, be reminded of the way, again, that Paul would talk about this in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 35. Paul would say, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? And it goes on in 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. It's because of the intercessory work of Christ. It's because His work as the priest and as the sacrifice as He continues to minister to us in that way. Christ establishes Himself as the priest in our, in our text in Luke today. He cleanses the temple. He establishes it to right order of worship. And He establishes Himself as the one who teaches daily authoritatively over His people. And because of that, He is rejected by some, but He is loved and embraced by many others. And as we prepare to take communion today, we come to the table, we're reminded We come to this table and we embrace it. We partake of the elements because we see that they signify His body that was offered up for us, His blood that was shed for us. And we're reminded when we take it now that He continues to intercede for us in this moment. And so the communion table becomes a place of worship. A place where we can confess. A place where we can be assured of the pardon that he offers to us when we come to him by faith. We come to our sympathetic and merciful and faithful high priest when we do this. And we find him faithful to minister on our behalf. If you're visiting here, communion is a time that we take together, and this is reserved for believers. And so if you're not a believer and you're visiting today, we just ask you to consider what it is that you've heard. And have you come to Christ by faith? Do you see him as the only hope for salvation? If you are here as a believer, and you're, you're welcome to partake of this with us, and we're reminded of what it is that Christ has done on the cross, his, his body that was offered up, and his blood that was shed on our behalf. And so I invite for you, the elements are on the back table, you can grab the element, return back to your seat, have some time of prayer, and then we'll partake of the communion time together here shortly.